This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Our guest today is Adam Ronke, wildlife biologist for Mississippi State University. This morning we'll talk about how and why we think and feel about wildlife. How do our attitudes toward wildlife affect our views about hunting and fishing? Why are feelings important for wildlife management? And how does gender or race affect how we think and feel about wildlife? We're looking for your voice to let us know how you interact with Mississippi's wildlife and nature. So you can join our conversation this morning with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464, or you can send us an email. It's animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday morning, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So, uh, good morning, Adam. Glad to have you back in studio with us. Good morning. I appreciate being here in this beautiful cold morning. Yes, indeed. Quite chilly uh, here in Mississippi, and it has turned uh, kind of quickly, I guess. We, uh, you know, I, I can think probably a couple of weeks ago. Uh, temperatures near 80, and certainly I I don't think we're going to get anywhere near that uh, this week. (laughs) One thing that we talked about last week that I'd like for you to reiterate is, um, you know, attracting birds in your backyard and the things that you can do, and I thought it was important and sort of a preview of what was to come. You talked especially about uh, the need for water and what to do when the weather turns cold. Exactly. I was thinking the same thing this morning when I was looking at one of my uh, bird baths that were frozen, but thankfully I still have... uh, my, uh, I talked about last week, I have open water that's moving and is not frozen because I have a small waterfall and small pond in my backyard, one of those little liner ponds on my deck. So that's a great way to, they really need water on these cold mornings. Uh, Dr. Major can talk more about the physiology of it, uh, but they're, they're, they're consuming a lot of water to maintain their, their heat along with food. Um, but a lot of people think of the food, but they don't think of the water element. And that's really, really important because uh, uh, it's going to get cold again tonight. Uh, so it will refreeze. And in some areas where it's shaded up in the northern part of the state, it may not unfreeze. Uh, so it's really important to have that free, available, clean water uh, moving. So this is a really good case study today uh, with it. We couldn't have timed it any better. So, uh, is there Are there simple things to do to maybe provide some sort of shelter? I know wind is, is a major factor in how cold it gets around here. Yeah, I actually just did a uh, article last week. Uh, it, um, it should be popping up throughout the the state, but you can go to Mississippi State uh, Extensions website, uh, Mississippi State uh, uh, Edu, and and find that information. Uh, just Google uh, uh, brush piles. Uh, when, once you get to our website, uh, it's real simple. Nothing elaborate to it. It's essentially building a wildlife fort. You can get the kids involved with it, but. Everyone's cleaning up for Thanksgiving this weekend, probably, with people coming over. So treetops and limbs and things like that, if you can pile them up into bigger uh, bigger piles uh, somewhere in the yard, typically in the back because, you know, mom doesn't want to see that mess, <laughs> um, leaves, things like that that can help insulate the pile, um, it provides a great structure 
for multiple things, protecting them from the wind, uh, shelter from the rain and wind also, which we've had plenty of that lately, uh, but also it will keep the ground warmer and moist underneath when we get into these drier times of the month, or, or year, I should say, um, and it provides a food resource underneath. All the worms and bugs are still kind of milling around underneath there. So I built one actually uh, the last two weekends because I was doing some new landscaping, and I had uh, tons of birds. I tried to get a video of it in my backyard. I just built it, um, and they're picking all through it. And they'll, they'll work their way through all that debris, and it provides a lot of thermal cover for them also. So that's a great way of doing it. All Plus, right. you don't have to haul it to the curb. So that's, the <laughs> that's nice an part. added benefit there. That's right. Uh, so you've got some events that you want to share with us, upcoming events. Yeah. i uh, like to always plug the museum here. Um, so this week, or sorry, next week, I should say, um, November 20th uh, from 10 a.m. to noon is called Turkey Tuesday. They've been doing this event for years. It's a big hit this time of year. Um, again, it's a two-hour event. Uh, they're going to have live turkeys, a turkey vulture, learn about eggs, and wild turkey uh, conservation. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can call the museum at 601-576-6000. Again, 601 576 for more information. Uh, and also, In the Dark exhibit is still going on until December 31st, so a little shorter than normal, so make sure you get in there before before the end of the year. Uh, also, Jackson Audubon, December 1st, coming up uh, really quickly here. They have their monthly bird walk at Lafleur Bluff uh, State Park right here in Jackson, just behind the building where we're sitting in today. And also, down on the coast, Coast Audubon has an event uh, coming up on December 4th at 6.30 p.m., Life in Costa Rica. Uh, it's about uh, international exploration of uh, different birds uh, down there with Katie Barnes from Birmingham uh, Audubon. Again, that's December 4th at 6.30 p.m. Uh, reach out to the Coast, uh, Coast Audubon Group. And don't forget there's Audubon groups all across the, the state and other wildlife groups across the state with events going on this time of year. Oh, and also, too, I would say if uh, you're listening and have an, a, a wildlife, uh, an animal-related event that you'd like to promote, you can always call us up and give us the details. We'd love to hear that. Always want to give uh, folks listening many options uh, to go out and about and interact with wildlife and nature here in Mississippi. So, Dr. Majors, we mentioned that the cold weather kind of snuck up on us, came along kind of suddenly, and this is the time of year when we think about things. Uh, so what, um, as the weather turns cold, what are some things to think about in terms of making sure our pets uh, stay uh, warm and healthy? Yeah, great. I, I love the brush pile idea. Of course, our pets may or may not take advantage of that. <laughs> uh, certainly, uh, shelter uh, from wind, cold weather, and and. Uh, adequate water resources and a lot of times it means if you don't have a a free-flowing fountain or something basically is to go out and crack the ice if there's Mm -hmm. ice put fresh water realizing that it may freeze again if the temperature is that low but be sure to stay on top of that Uh, water is critical and uh, as adam was uh, alluding to uh, obviously you have to have plenty of water from the standpoint of a metabolism and uh, when it's cold uh, animals are burning more uh, energy, calories, if you will, uh, for uh, warmth. And uh, most of our most of our dogs, for example, handle it pretty well. Some don't. We have a lot of um, somehow Arctic dogs here, from Siberian Huskies to uh, Samoids. Uh, those type of dogs love it when it turns cold. 
Uh, others, I feel uh, their pain year round. <laughs> I don't know how they make it that way. <laughs> I don't either. Others uh, like to, well, of course, Chihuahua shake most of the time anyway, so <laughs> it's not it's not a good test. But I'm always amazed at the wide variety of uh, clothes that these dogs have. Uh, and sweaters are not a bad thing for the short-haired dogs, uh, and most of them will tolerate those. But uh, as far as our cats outside, of course, uh, I would recommend that, again, I always try to bring up the fact that, uh, in general, outside cats don't live as long as inside cats. Uh, because of uh, several things. One is uh, competition from feral cats and disease. Uh, but cats are pretty smart about finding a place to get out of the, the uh, elements. They, they'll find a place. Unfortunately, uh, one of those places is uh, under hood of a car. Mm. And uh, I would suggest if you have cats around, when you start your car, uh, before you start it, maybe tap on the horn, uh, do something like that because there's nothing more distressing than having to pry a cat out from the fan belt, mm-hmm. uh, which can't happen. They love to get on the warm engine, and uh, it can be obviously fatal if you're not uh, careful. Yeah. And I would think, yeah, you know, as skittish as cats are and as, as alert they are to their surroundings, a, a horn blower, maybe even a wrap on the hood, um, that will certainly wake them up and let them know that they need to uh, famoose. Uh, right. The other interesting thing, my cat is an indoor cat, you know, li- lives the, the pampered life of an indoor cat. but uh, And usually when I open the door, we'll kind of stick his head out there. Last night, as cold as it was, every time I opened the door, he acted like he wanted to go outside. And I kept telling him, no, no, you don't, you don't want to go out there. Uh, I think if he ever would have gotten out there, he would have quickly turned around and come back in. But I just thought that was kind of funny that uh, he seemed to want to go out when the, it got so cold. But certainly, uh, temperature changes uh, in your in that cat's case, he was just interested in seeing why it was colder, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do see some uh, changes in appetite. Uh, actually, some some of our animals don't eat as well when, it, when the weather changes. Others uh, will. Uh, just uh, I guess when when the temperature changes, we see more of our arthritis type situations in in dogs, uh, more pain maybe where they have issues with arthritis. Uh, so uh, with those dogs, the older dogs especially, be sure to provide comfortable bedding if they will use it. Sometimes they won't, but uh, just be aware that they may show more signs of uh, having difficulty getting up, moving around. Uh, my cat should know, though, that he doesn't like cold uh, temperatures because when his perch on top of the refrigerator, every time I open the freezer door, uh, he, he backs away quite quickly, although <laughs> he likes the refrigerator. So maybe he likes cool temperatures, I think, because he sometimes will actually try to crawl into the refrigerator. But like I say, when I open the freezer, uh, he tends to back off. You mentioned sweaters, uh, and I guess if you're pet if your dog i guess is more so uh is something that they don't mind having on would be good as you mentioned for the short-haired ones uh like dog shoes maybe that might be helpful in this cold weather as well a lot of it has to do with what animal will tolerate and mm-hmm. also i think a lot of the sweaters and outfits are more for the owner than for the pet uh <laughs> truthfully but in some cases uh, they do have shoes uh which can uh can protect the feet uh and do we really have that cold of weather down here? Yes, we may have a week or two that uh, would be very cold, but most dogs tolerate it quite well. 
All right. Uh, We need to take a quick break. Uh, When we return, we'll talk about Mississippi wildlife and you. What are your interests and what do you value about wildlife? We'll talk about that with our guest, Adam Ronke. Also, Dr. Majors here ready for your pet questions. So call them in. Questions and comments at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464 or email the show animals at mpbonline.org. During the break, here's something to think about. Do you know the official state animal? We'll have that answer for you after the break, so stay tuned. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and our guest today, Adam Ronke. If you want to join in on our conversation with a question or comment, the number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Before the break, we asked the question, the official state animal of Mississippi, several in fact. Uh, the land mammal is the white-tailed deer, not a surprise. The marine mammal, the bottlenose dolphin. The fish is the largemouse bass. And the bird is the northern mockingbird. So that's uh, the state animals, official state animals of Mississippi. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit, uh, Adam, and, and we talked about the break, that this is some research that you've been doing, and I guess sort of understanding people's attitudes and the way they interact with uh, wildlife is actually important and useful information for management of wildlife? Yeah, it it really is. Um, as I was saying over the break, uh, you know, I got into wildlife biology to, to work with wildlife, uh, you know, we're all humans, so we're like, well, you know, I've had enough with humans. I'm going to go work with wildlife, <laughs> but uh, quickly became uh, knowledgeable and, and, and realized that. Um, and a couple of our talk or our callers last week brought this up at the end of the show of, of the impact that humans can have on wildlife, both you know positive and uh, uh, negative. Uh, and really realized that wildlife management has a huge component. It deals with human management, human emotions towards wildlife, human interests, uh, and their cognitions about wildlife is really uh, important to understand how are we going to actually move a, a, a management program forward. Um, as simple as, and we have get a lot of phone calls about, say, like uh, Canada geese, you know, and how are we going to uh, deal with the issues that they can bring to a golf course or to a neighborhood. There will be a lot of varying opinions within a, a, a certain neighborhood on how that situation should be handled. So we know what we can do, the couple, three, four different options as far as biology goes forth, but none of that can be implemented until we can get everyone on the same page and, and understand which way is the best way to go forward within that neighborhood. So that's typically where we spend most of our time as biologists now. So talk a little bit about how someone's values and feelings towards wildlife can influence their behavior. Yeah, so there, there's, there's a lot of different theories, and I'm not going to claim that I know uh, a lot of them. Again, I'm a biologist coming into the kind of the psychology world here, but uh, some of the, the bigger ones um, that uh, we, we focus a lot of time on, uh, fancy word here called cognitive. I feel like I'm on one of the other morning shows uh, <laughs> right now, but uh, cognitive, which is basically a, just a thinking process, uh, how we think through the days. Um, there's cultural processes, and then there's also a thing called motivation. That's used a lot with hunting and other activities. What is the motivation to get out there and recreate with that uh, uh, animal or or that environment? So it's basically just kind of a linear progression of of, of how we think through uh, uh, elements, including uh, values, 
uh, value orientations, uh, attitudes, social norms, and then are uh, ultimately leading to behaviors. And I'll get into that a little bit more here in a moment. But um, then there's a new area um, that I don't have a lot of experience in that I'm going to be working towards getting into it. And it's probably the area that we needed to get into uh, earlier on, but it's really, really hard to figure out and measure. And it's people's feelings about wildlife or natural resources. And we all know that with the political climate that we're in and everything, that there's a lot of emotion uh, for for better or, or, or worse. We're emotional animals ourselves, so there's a lot of work going into the emotions tied with wildlife and natural resources. You know, those things can be fear. Uh, we have a lot of fear of snakes in this in the state and in, in most areas. Um, where does that come from? Is that a primal uh, thing? Um, how is that developed? Is it learned? Is it is it taught uh, all those uh, angles that you can look at it? Um, so again, it's more of a cognitive, cultural, and motivational is the big three on how we think through things, and then kind of more the innate feeling side is the emotions tied with wildlife. So, how do you go about trying to measure how someone thinks and feels about wildlife? Yeah, that's uh, that was the most challenging part <laughs> that I learned as a biologist, uh, Dr. Major. You can attest to this going through your schooling. You know, we we have something tangible that we can grab and we we put a caliper on it. We can measure it. You know, we can get it down to the millimeter if we need to. Um, that's not the case when you're trying to measure someone's uh, uh, attitudes or, or or values. So, really, how how it gets down to uh, measuring this is essentially you, you try to think of the what they call a construct or the idea of that you're trying to measure. And in a lot of cases, it comes out in a survey or, or an interview process where you develop a set of questions to try and hone in on this thing that you're trying to get an idea on, this attitude or this this value. So you develop, develop a set of questions, essentially, is what you're doing, um, and, and, and go from there. And then there's different ways of, of, of doing that. But um, specifically, what I was working on was something called wildlife value orientations. Um, so it's it's people's values towards wildlife. And, and if you want to think about it, if you're driving and listening, I'm not going to try and bore you to death here, but um, that linear progression that I was talking about, basically we all start off with these core uh, beliefs, these values that kind of guide us through life. Um, and there's been a lot of work on it. There's just a small set of values, um, you know, in the 20s and 30s that everyone shares across the world. Um, and um, how we reflect those values would be the value orientations and beliefs People can share, have the same value on something, but then it can diverge in how we actually implement it in our, in our life in a daily process. So, so then you move from uh, your your values to value orientations into attitudes and norms. So, if you think about this, it's kind of like an upside down triangle. Values are real small. Then you move to your value orientations, and then attitudes and norms. There's tons of attitudes, and our attitudes of, on on a, a specific subject could change depending on the situation that we're in and how you feel or how you evaluate something like a sandwich. You know, I may really like a warm sandwich today, um, but, you know, that same sandwich, I may not like it so much, uh, you know, if it was August. Uh, <laughs> so it can be very contextual uh, with that. But the good thing about attitudes is that usually helps us predict behavior. So if you have a positive attitude, say, towards wild, or towards hunting, chances are that you may actually be more likely to actually participate in hunting, and that's how it can be really important uh, in helping us with wildlife management. we got some calls to get to, but one, one yeah. other question I wanted to ask about this that seems interesting is I guess a lot of attitudes, as you say, values and things are 
sort of instilled into us as children, maybe from our parents or that sort of thing. Uh, do attitudes, say, about wildlife that maybe are formed as children, do we tend to keep those throughout our life, or do life experiences sometimes change them a little bit? That's a very good question. So, yes, yeah, so values, values in the sense, they're, they're almost... Concrete's a really strong word, pun intended there. Um, but once you get through your formative years, those values that you have about everything in life tend to, they can fluctuate. They can shift a little bit, but they tend to be pretty centralized and, 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 and formed uh, in, that, in that realm, unless you have a large life event uh, that may dr- dramatically change those. Now, your attitudes can change, again, on a day-to-day basis or in a situation, uh, but values tend to stay... Uh, uh, pretty stable throughout one's life. So yes, a lot of those are developed, and that's where the cultural part comes into the family unit, uh, the extended family, and also the community that you've grown up in. Uh, for instance, that's why hunting and fishing is really, really popular in the rural areas because it's more of a cultural aspect. It's ingrained in the culture uh, there, and it's typically more accepted in, in some of those areas across the country uh, because of that. So yes, it's very much. Uh, important what happens in your formative years. So if someone's interested in, in this kind of research uh, and, and these sorts of questions, where where might they go to try to learn more about it? Oh, there's a, there's a bunch. The, probably the leaders right now, uh, each state has a lot of people uh, working on it, but the leaders right now in a, in a process that I use was from Colorado State University, um, and they, they developed this wildlife value orientation uh, tool, the set of questions that we used here in Mississippi to measure um, how people kind of divvy up into these different groups. Um, and that helps us as managers understand, well, these folks may be more inclined uh, uh, to protect wildlife and maybe not hunt wildlife to where other folks uh, may be more inclined to use wildlife in hunting and fishing and conservation. And then you have some people kind of in the middle that may not be interested either way uh, because they're maybe more removed. Um, but, yeah, if you're interested in that, you can type in uh, wildlife value orientations in Colorado State University. The the authors are Tara Teal and uh, Michael Manfredo uh, out there at uh, Colorado State, and they've got a lot of great information. All right. Uh, we've got some phone calls to get to. We'll start in Memphis. Kay is on the line. Good morning, Kay. You're on the air with us. Okay, thank you. All I wanted to tell you are... I guess they do still make bird bath water heaters. I have one that I've been using for about five years, and you just do an extension line out and plug it in, pop it in the, the thing of water, and uh, it'll keep the water drinkable for the birds, you know, 24-7. I, I, they must still make them, but I've, as I said, I've been using this one for five years, so it was 20-something dollars, I guess, but that's a small investment for the convenience and my bird bath is very popular in the wintertime okay all right kate thanks for the tip good idea that was uh one thing that we didn't touch on again earlier in the show talking about ways uh, to make sure that birds uh, in your backyard during this cold weather uh have uh, a fresh supply of water and uh the bird bath heater is is a good one to keep in mind so appreciate uh, you calling in this morning uh next we've got on the line our friend kathleen from osaka you're on the air with us kathleen go ahead kathleen are you with us all right, let's hold that. We'll get back to that later. Uh, if you'd like to join in our conversation, the number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Let's take another break. When we get back, we'll continue Creature Comforts right here on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. 
And our guest today is Adam Ronke, wildlife biologist for Mississippi State University. We've been talking a little bit about studying uh, the public's attitudes towards uh, wildlife uh, and how that can be a useful tool for wildlife management. It's some research that Adam has been doing. And Adam, you uh, kind of alluded to um, what I wanted to ask about next, and that is uh, different factors that might affect uh, someone's attitude toward uh, wildlife. And you mentioned rural versus urban. Uh, that, I think, plays a factor. What are some other ones, maybe gender or age or race? Yeah, so all those uh, demographic elements can come into uh, come into effect. And that's been kind of shown across uh, the country. It's not just uh, um, for here, for, for Mississippi. Um, but yes, uh, those, those factions really can uh, uh, play into it. Um, to kind of give an example, an overview uh, of, of Mississippi and what we found. So again, using that, that, that uh, tool, we'll just call it a tool. It's the easiest way to do it. I'm not going to drop modeling the language on you here because I, I get nervous. My hands start sweating just talking about it again. But um, uh, this tool that was developed in Colorado, so we implemented here in, in Mississippi. And essentially what it is, it's a set of questions to evaluate these value orientations that we were talking about, these set of beliefs. Um, and then it gives you a score. And then from that score, you then get assigned to different groups. So for Mississippi, the groups, uh, what we call utilitarian, those are the more traditional-oriented folks that are uh, – uh, they they value wildlife just like everyone else does, but they view wildlife as here for for human uh, use uh, to a, to a point. Um, uh, but in the sense of hunting, fishing, things okay that that's okay to use, as long as your res- the animal is respected. Um, and then we have uh, kind of on the other pole, we have a mutualist group, uh, which view essentially on, on the farthest of that pole would be. They view wildlife as a nearly or an exact equivalent to humans, so they should have those protections uh, as humans also. Uh, then we have this group that's called a pluralist, um, and just kind of like our politics, these are these would be the independents. These would be the the ones in the middle um, that kind of share views of, of both sides, uh, depending on the context you put it in in the situation. Um, that uh, that's the group that they fall into. So they share the values of both with that. So in Mississippi, when we did the survey uh, a year and a half ago, statewide survey, we found that actually in Mississippi we have 40% of our population is pluralist. Um, so and this is urban areas and and very very rural areas. Uh, no no uh, bias either way with that. Uh, we found that thirty percent of us are mutualist and twenty nine percent of us are utilitarian. So pretty evenly divided uh, uh, with that. Um, and I kind of expected that. I expected us to actually be a little more utilitarian because we are such an agrarian state uh, with that and have that strong tie. But I think that's where a lot of the pluralists uh, fall into it because again they share values from from both sides. Uh, with that. But as far as getting to what you asked me originally, um, is where does race and where does um, uh, gender come into it specifically, which are really important topics um, across all states, but also here in Mississippi, um, it kind of breaks down a little differently. So uh, for African Americans in Mississippi, 45% of the population uh, is mutualist, okay? Uh, And then 27, 28% is uh, utilitarian, and then 27% is uh, pluralist. As compared to uh, Caucasian or, or, or whites, you're looking at uh, 47%, roughly 50% is pluralist, 30% is utilitarian, and 22% are mutualist. So you can see the difference there that uh, nearly half of African Americans identify themselves as as mutualist, but yet um, 
uh, only about a quarter of, of uh, Caucasian or whites uh, do that. So wh- where is that difference coming from? So uh, looking at uh, the theory and, and, and back and forth on that, some of that is, uh, again, getting to what you asked me before, people's experience with wildlife. Uh, not only current, present, but also historical experience with wildlife and nature in general. And there's been a lot of support and research that um, there's been different experiences, obviously, for for whites and African Americans um, across the board, but particularly in the South um, uh, when it comes to rural areas and also uh, uh, the recreational aspect of it. In a lot of cases, there were barriers to African Americans uh, to recreate. Uh, they weren't allowed to uh, in our you know 100 150 years ago. Uh, they didn't feel invited uh, uh, to do so. Um, and there's also potentially some logistical barriers as far as costs and things like that that can go with that and other possible negative connotations. So that would probably gear them more into the line of being more mutualist oriented. Again, those are just theories. We haven't tested those, but that's uh, uh, one element that's interesting. And then when you look on the flip side, you get into uh, the differences between gender, um, males and females. This is where we see it nationally, uh, quite a difference. Very similar to African-Americans, uh, females are almost 50% mutualist uh, and then split uh, between utilitarian and pluralist. And then in males, you see only uh, 18% are mutualist and then about half are pluralist, so, um, which is what we've seen in other studies. They've done this study out, out west in about 16 different states uh, out there, and they're actually conducting a national-wide study right now but um, so looking at that, a lot of uh, the thought is that that is what they call a, a gender theory and socialization. Um, and now this is obviously changing, and I should say all these numbers are averages and about a larger group. It's not speaking to a specific individual or a small group of uh, folks. Um, so there's plenty of female hunters uh, out there and people that are interested with it. Um, but they're more inclined to be mutualist because of a lot of our uh, our social norms and how uh, females are raised in society, but we are seeing that change. And that was one of the main points of the study is um, they did this 10 years ago out west. They've revamped it. We've used it here in Mississippi. Other states are using it. And now other states uh, or the nationwide is going on 10 years later to see if we can see if this trend is changing at all. And that will help us as a wildlife professionals and an agency, particularly like the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, to understand where our folks are kind of moving so they can then gear their programming to reflect our population and be a little more effective with that. So it's kind of neat stuff. Uh, you've got to uh, leave a little bit early, but I did want to get this one call in before mm-hmm. you go. So we'll yes. talk with uh, Joel uh, from Texas. Good morning, Joel. You're on the air with us. All right. Joel, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Great. Thanks for uh, having me. And I wondered if your guest had, uh, through this research, found any correlation in a topic that we have in Louisiana, where I'm from, uh, quite often, that any correlation or any experience in the topic of the pluralist, um, mutualist, or utilitarians of sorts um, being in one category or another when it comes to actual wildlife conservation. Uh, specifically, we talk uh, a lot of times about your pluralist or um, more of your uh, utilitarians possibly being more supportive due to the fact they're more involved in that recreation uh, 
So if you if you found anything that has to do uh, along the lines of any correlation between your data and findings and that, I would love to hear it. Thanks so much, gentlemen. Thank you for the call. That's a real uh, good good question, and obviously you have an interest in it, and I appreciate it. Um, yes, uh, other studies have. Uh, I was specifically looking at trying to test this tool to make sure that it was going to work in Mississippi and then kind of get a general idea. But I did ask other questions uh, regarding uh, their hunting and fishing uh, uh, past, present, and future activities, um, and they would correlate, as you kind of alluded to, that um, – Typically, the utilitarians and pluralists were more likely to engage in hunting and fishing in the future. Um, and then also, mutualists would be a little more declined. Uh, but what was interesting in Mississippi compared to the, the states out west is even though there was a difference, all three groups were a little more, I guess, pro, proactive or pro-hunting and fishing in the sense of they were supportive of it. Now, it didn't necessarily translate into their actual activity, and that was for all three groups across the board. And we think that is maybe an indication of of um, other logistical constraints, and I can attest to that. Having a three-year-old right now, it's every minute of the day is consumed with something. So there, there may be some other things that are keeping all three groups, even the utilitarian folks that are more engaged in it, um, from participating in hunting. And that's why maybe we're seeing some of these hunting and fishing numbers uh, uh, go down. But you're right on the mutualist uh, side. They may not be engaging in the traditional activities that we're talking about, but there's other ways. And Dr. Major, you brought this up when you walked in. Um, there's other ways to possibly engage them. And particularly me being an urbanite, I was interested in trying to find that uh, and see what some of those activities. And there's a lot of folks across the nation that are doing good work on that um, to try and find other activities, alternative activities that can engage these groups back into overall conservation. But also I, I would uh, surmise that maybe conservation efforts or conservationists might get a boost from this sort of research because it would seem to me that each of the three groups you've identified would maybe different reasons for, but each one would seem to have reasons to promote and support efforts to preserve and conserve our natural resources. Exactly, exactly. So uh, that's exactly what I said during my uh, my defense, my presentation. <laughs> my last line was, in Mississippi, we should be really, really happy that the vast majority, probably 95% above, have some level of interest in wildlife. Now, some of these other states that they did this, there was a fourth group that did not show up really in Mississippi. It's called distanced. And when you put this set of questions in front of them, they just kind of look at it and go, mm, it's just not on the radar. Not judging them. It's just not on their radar. Typically in very dense urban areas, uh, the, the Los Angeles, the, those kind of areas, again, not knocking them. It's just like if you put a set of questions about sewing or something in front of me, I would have no opinion on it because I'm not interested in it or not active in it. So these areas that are completely different than Mississippi, you're you're seeing that these larger distance groups are coming up. But guess what? They still have a vote on how wildlife is going to be managed um, and it can impact it from that well. So that that part can scare a lot of our folks in that sense too, but you can also look at is it half empty or half full that those folks maybe don't have things so ingrained in their head about wildlife that I see that distance group maybe is now a potential opportunity for me to go in as an educator to maybe engage them in some type of conservation uh, with wildlife. But very, very good question. Okay, I know that you need to leave. Really appreciate you coming in. Interesting research. So let's uh, take this final break. When we get back, Dr. Major will still be here. We'll take some pet questions. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. 
Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. For the remainder of the time, we're going to take your pet questions at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show, animals at mpbonline.org. We do have a caller on the line. Sue from Beaumont has called in today. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. I guess Adam's gone already, huh? Yeah, he had to leave a little bit early. Well, uh, I'm going to make my comment about what I think about it anyway, okay? Okay. Good. I, I think that uh, human beings' place in nature is to observe and preserve habitat for critters, and then leave them alone. Let them do their own thing, because when, every time I hear wildlife management, it makes me cringe, because I know that when human beings stick their nose into things, it's going to mess up the whole scheme, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Leave them alone. Just set, set aside their, their habitat, and then get out of there, and leave everything to do their thing. All right, Sue. Uh, but the good thing, though, I think, as we said there sort of at the end, uh, the, the different groups in Mississippi might have some different motivations, but all of them have some sort of shared interest in, in preserving wildlife. So hopefully uh, that uh, folks can work together uh, and continue to uh, conserve and preserve uh, the great natural resources that we're blessed with here in Mississippi. So appreciate your phone call. We've got another caller on the line. Looks like a pet question coming from Hugh in Ocean Springs. Hugh, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Yes, hello. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I have a cat that's mostly an outdoor cat. You know, we got him. He was hanging around last winter. We thought he would go someplace else. <laughs> Ended up, you know, being a cat that lives in the garage, and we got him a brooder light to keep him warm. Right. You know, in, in the spring, we took him to the vet, you know, saying, well, I guess he's our cat. We thought we'd have him looked at and have his shots and so forth, you know. So we did that, and, and then we got a card from the vet saying, you know, you need to bring your cat in for his six-month wellness exam. And my question, I suppose, is do cats get a six-month wellness exam? I mean, I don't even go to the doctor every six months. Understand, understand. If the cat's in good health, I would kind of go against uh, necessarily bringing him back in in six months. I think a yearly checkup would be important. But, That's uh, what I do with our dogs. Unless, unless there was a reason, uh, I would have to say that that's probably a little bit over the top in a normal healthy cat. Because he's not inside, you know, yeah, and it's yeah. not like, you know, he's got a special diet or he doesn't have medication. Right. And, and, and I know people have cats with diabetes and stuff. It's like, sure. wow, you know, there's a lot of cats out there. Right. And, you know, but, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things where you, you feed the cat for a few weeks and it's your cat after that. It's not going to go away as long as you're feeding it. So I think you're doing a good job. And uh, I would do an annual checkup. And he does need uh, current vaccinations simply because of his chance of exposure uh, to other uh, cat-type diseases. So that's, that's a good idea. All right, Hugh, appreciate your call. Uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. For the next 10 minutes or so, we're taking your pet questions with Dr. Major. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring You can reach us at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Janet from Brookhaven sent this in uh, email that says, uh, my dog's about 10 years old, a dachshund. She has had skin conditions each spring through the summer and fall. Then in the winter months, she gets better. Breaks out in pimple-like bumps and scratches so bad it gets infected. Uh, had her on a different prescriptions and steroid shots. This gets better and then right back bad again. Will lose most of her hair on her tail and back. My problem now is that she's had a very bad odor. I give her a bath, and within two days, the odor is back. She's never had anything done to her teeth. 
Uh, I was wondering if it could be her teeth or maybe her feet. She's always licking her feet. Have you ever encountered this? Does it seem familiar? Uh, and maybe some thoughts on what she might could do. Okay. First of all, she said 10 years old. Is yes. Mm -hmm. Correct. Okay. Certainly the teeth could be an issue as far as odor. And uh, also, you know, that the teeth, just like in humans, uh, if you have infection there, certainly can cause some issues with kidneys, liver, uh, heart, uh, certainly heart condition. So I would have those checked. As far as the odor, it may be that this dog is licking so much, licking her feet, uh, scratching and licking her back. There may be a yeast infection that's involved. Uh, a lot of times because of moist uh, licking and chewing, we get uh, a buildup of the yeast type infection. And that can smell pretty much uh, sour smell, and you can bathe the dog, <clears throat> and frankly, uh, shortly thereafter, it'll start smelling again. I would consult with your vet about that, and uh, certainly there are medications other than steroids that might help. It sounds like this is seasonal, and certainly it can get uh, pretty bad if she does get the skin infected with the yeast infection. All right. Uh, our producer, Java, found uh, the list of top Christmas items for your dog. And topping the list, according to PetMD, is a new dog bed. Uh, only second uh, in second place was ant uh, reindeer antlers for all your Christmas pictures. So, Dr. Major, is there a benefit for kind of giving the dog a little bed, his own little spot to uh, to lay down, to take a nap or to go to sleep? Right. And it depends on the dog. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of their some very expensive uh, dog beds out there. Some are designer, but the, the basic dog bed should be comfortable, whether it's Tempur-Pedic or just a good soft bed. The little dogs love it. Uh, uh, Chihuahua uh, hides in it and gets in and covers herself up. Uh, bigger dogs would like to have a bed to lie on in most cases. However, a lot of them prefer a hard floor. Hmm. They, they like to lay on the hard floor, but Yes, there is benefit to that, and uh, our big dog, uh, she loves to lay on a pillow, a big pillow, mm -hmm. or her dog bed. And again, we, earlier in the show, we were talking about you know cold weather and things to do. I guess if uh, if you have an indoor outdoor dog or an outdoor dog, if you had a dog bed, uh, that would give them a nice sort of a little bit warmer place, maybe to to get away from the cold and the wind. Right, and of course, obviously, you want to keep it where it won't get wet from uh, the rain. And out of the, you know, out of the wind, that's important. I think a lot of times our dogs uh, don't have adequate shelter from wind. And if they did have a bed or bedding, uh, that would make it a lot warmer uh, for that particular dog. And also, I guess if you have maybe a garage, a utility room, that sort of thing, on these very, very cold nights, uh, you could let the dogs uh, go in there, give them a little break from the wind. You know, I was uh, playing in a tennis tournament this last weekend, and it was cold. And I'll say that uh, the wind certainly is what makes it I'm, – I'm not a weatherman here, but obviously the wind is what makes it, you know, a little bit harder to deal with. If it's a, a nice sunny day out and it's not too windy, even when it's cold, it's not too bad. But the wind uh, really for humans and I right. guess our pets can be kind of right. uh, dangerous. Some people get turned off about beds and bedding uh, simply because uh, some of the dogs will tear it up. They'll literally mm -hmm. chew it up, shred it up, and in some cases eat it, uh, which is not a good deal. They do make uh, 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 beds that are supposedly indestructible. However, it depends on the dog, and a lot of them will work at trying to find a way to tear it up. But uh, I do recommend uh, having some sort of bedding, especially when these dogs that are outside.
All right. So how about, uh, you know, I think we've talked about uh, rawhide chews on the show before. Uh, and and you said that sometimes maybe if they splinter or whatever material they're made of, but also I know my brother uh, has several dog toys that are kind of like a thick sort of a plastic that the dog can chew on. I know one of their favorite ones is that one where you, you stick the treat in the middle of the toy and the dog has to work its way through the toy to get to the treat. What are your thoughts about things to get let the dog uh, chew on? You know, this is a good thing for, for most dogs. You have to be careful and kind of know your dog. Uh, some of the rawhide uh, chews, they will swallow, literally swallow whole, and it can be very difficult to digest, and sometimes there could be an obstruction from the different types of chews. I like the ones that don't tear up, uh, specifically uh, one of the name brands, Nylabone. Uh, it's very difficult for a dog to tear up. Some dogs can, but there are other uh, toys and treats. That's a good treat that you hide the hide the food in, uh, it gives the dog something to do. I guess you would say that it's an enrichment-type uh, activity, uh, but the, a lot of them like like that. So, yes, uh, a lot of our dogs really uh, do well with certain toys. Well, and also, too, you know, you should always monitor your pets, and so if you see that the dog is chewing up something and, and maybe is chewed it a pretty good bit, it might, sure. might be a time to retire that one and get a new one out there. Uh, that thing I saw a, a a little video this morning about cats, uh, and the la- they love to chase the laser pointer, and that's been a popular gift. But the one thing I saw in this video that I thought was important was that they said that give the cat some sort of reward. In other words, cats <laughs> love to hunt, and so they're chasing the laser pointer around. But they said, you know, maybe hide a treat under the couch or something, and eventually guide the cat to something to where maybe it gets that little reward for for doing all that hunting. Well, certainly rewards are good ways to train, and uh, cats are a little bit more difficult uh, to know when to give a reward, but uh, they like them. Uh, my cats, uh, when I come home in the afternoon, they jump on the bed and want me to put out some cat treats, <laughs> uh, and I do. I can't resist that, but they, they all, all, all the three of them, you know, they want the treats, Uh which is a good idea. One of the toys that we've got now that the cats seem to like, and I've got one or two of these toys at the clinic, it's uh, actually kind of like a little pyramid, and it has three roller balls, one on three different levels. And the kittens especially like to bat those balls around and watch them come back. And you'll see two or three kittens playing with it all at the same time. So there are things that uh, will keep them occupied, of course, uh, our big cat does that in the middle of the night. You'll hear him batting, the, <laughs> batting it around. But anyway, there, there are things that you can do. And, you know, a lot of times for cats, a box. Cut mm-hmm. a hole in one end, hole in the other end, seal it up. They love to hide. They mm-hmm. love to jump out. If you have two cats, they love to jump out, uh, you know, hide and play predator, I guess. But uh, there are things you can do that you don't have to go buy. Boxes are great for uh, kids and pets okay uh we've got kathleen from osaka here to wrap us up this morning good morning kathleen go ahead i just love your show kevin i tell you that and the doc and oh i enjoy it so much the uh the thing i wanted to celebrate with y'all this is bb's third christmas with me who would have thought i would have put up with him this long (laughs) and he's doing fine great and uh I have a, a little yard bird I wanted to ask you about. It's kind of funny. I walk out in the yard, and she whistles at me, or he whistles at me. <laughs> and uh, 
I turn around, I whistle back, and I walk, and then it seems like he follows me. I walked all the way to the gate, and he, he was, or she was whistling at me, like a, you know, kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, well, I haven't been whistled at in a while. I guess I don't mind so much. <laughs> Well, just, Y'all have a good good holidays, and I enjoy your show. Sometimes if I don't call in, I'm listening. All right, I've had okay. a lot of great guests. Thank you so much, Kevin. All righty, thanks, Kathleen, Thank you, for the Kathleen. call. Thank you. So yeah, that uh, I mean, now that I guess that's you know, if if a bird chirps at you and you chirp back, maybe that you get a little conversation going there. Absolutely. All right, uh, that's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by listeners just like you. To hear a today's show or previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creature comforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Michelle McAdoo. So for Dr. Troy Major and our guest Adam Ronke, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned up next at 10. It's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Conference, heard only on MPB Think Radio. underwritten by Blue